Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. Hello, DTC Pod. My name is Ramon, CEO of Trend, and I'm joined uh, by my co-host, Blaine, founder of OmniPanel. And today we have Cal from Taika. And Cal, I actually, um, people that, you know, obviously are not watching the podcast might recognize your brand from the can with the phone number on it. Um, That's how certainly it pops out to me. So exactly, there you go. I got my own right here. Um, so, you know, we, we would love to learn more about about Taika and, and what it's all about and more about you. For sure. Yeah. And thanks for having me. I've been a big fan of the podcast for a while, so I'm excited to be here. So, yeah, Taika is a brand that helps creatives do their best work. So we basically want to build a Red Bull for creativity. And we started a couple of years ago uh, focusing on coffee. So I can kind of give a big, quick background on me because that leads to where we're at now. So I've been working in coffee for about 15 years as a barista, a bunch of roasters, started my first company out of high school when I was 17, did some coffee competitions, became two-time Finnish barista champion and got ranked ninth best in the world at some point. And then kind of started a coffee, instant coffee startup, sudden coffee. Um, and at some point I realized that I love coffee, but not how it made me feel anymore. Started getting kind of jittery and anxious from it. And with my co-founder Michael, who was the first mobile product manager at Facebook, has a long career in tech, built you know products that probably most listeners have used at some point. Um, came up with this idea of essentially aiming to design the ideal coffee, so something that tastes amazing, makes you feel great, and is actually good for you. And we do that by using super high quality coffee. We can it, and we add some functional mushrooms and adaptogens, things like L-theanine from green tea, ashwagandha, um, lion's mane. That's a really cool kind of functional mushroom that has a lot of data showing that it can help sort of new neural growth in the brain and a bunch of interesting things. And then we'll make it super delicious without any added sugar. So it's kind of approach we call stealth health. And so it's kind of what we've been working on for a couple of years and, and now kind of looking to expand outside of the coffee realm as well. That's awesome. I, I, I got stuck in the world champion part. Um, can you tell us more about that? Is that what led you essentially, you know, to to the route of, of building this brand? And, and how has that translated into, you know, how you built Taika? Yeah, so there's a thing called barista competitions, which is you should Google it. I don't necessarily want to bore you with all the details, but you make like a bunch of drinks and there's like an audience and you might even find a video of me doing it online, which is kind of embarrassing, but uh, it's there for sort of uh, posterity. But yeah, anyway, so kind of went deep end in the specialty craft coffee world. And, and when I was 21, opened, I grew up in Finland, in Helsinki, Finland, and opened my first cafe when I was 21 and thought I would run that on weekends while going to school. I did my undergrad in food science. And at some point I realized that I didn't want to be stuck running a small coffee shop. What I really love doing is kind of using coffee as a tool or a way to make someone's day better. And at the same time, sort of early 2010s, there was a big startup boom in Finland. There's a big tech company called Slush that I kind of helped co-organize and organize all the coffee there. And so a lot of my friends were working on tech startups. And I started thinking of how could I turn coffee into a scalable product company? And started looking into this idea of making instant coffee that would actually taste good. Because instant coffee is a super scalable coffee product. It's basically 
you brew liquid coffee and then you get rid of all the water and what's left is the you know brown stuff that makes it taste and smell of something and as we probably all know most instant coffee is pretty bad and that's because they use you know crappy coffee to make it use like bad processes and so convinced my uh, food science professor to let me use the university freeze dryer and made like a super scrappy like a first batch of instant coffee there and turns out you could actually make it really tasty if you just use good coffee and, and kind of are careful about the processing to not destroy the flavor. So started working on this idea, met a couple of people who told me that I should move to San Francisco and they kind of helped me get started and found a co-founder here. And so I moved to the Bay Area end of 2015. We built a little factory here, um, got funded by Y Combinator as one of their first, first and only, like not only, but one of the first food investments and ended up raising a pretty good amount of money from like venture capitalists to grow the company. What, uh, Cal, what was it like? Like you said, you were one of YC's first, uh, you know, food or CPG sort of brands. So what was that process like going through Y Combinator uh, in a different category? It was certainly a little tricky. We applied three times and then we got another fourth time. The first time I actually applied was like a different idea. And so persistence there certainly helps. And obviously when you're making, you know, building bits or sorry, building atoms or a physical product versus, you know, making something software, the lead times and, and cycles are much longer. So that was certainly tricky. Like we couldn't move quite as fast as some of the other companies like in our batch. Uh, but that being said, I think a lot of the sort of lessons NYC are pretty transferable to whatever you're building. And it certainly gave us a lot of credibility and helped us just push faster building on the D2C side and so on. Um, and then I ended up leaving the company about a year after we you know, went through YC. And that was sort of very amicably. So my co-founder was running it. We just kind of went to build a little bit different things and then took some time off, realized that I, you know, wanted to work on this idea of making functionally better coffee. So then ended up started working on Taika in like early 2019. So would you say that the, um, you know, some of the inspiration that you drew in Taika, you, you were able to bring in, you know, some of the lessons that you learned from the first company, but maybe um, rethink th through some of the values and the different ways of um, going about building a new brand based on those lessons you learned? Oh, absolutely. And how I actually got started with Taika was, so once you get into YC, you get access to this uh, sort of internal forum called Bookface that is awesome. You can kind of connect with all the YC founders and how I started working on it, how I found kind of the first customers was I just started posting on the forum, like, hey, I'm working on this new idea of making this new coffee product. Like, do you want to sign up to be an alpha tester? And found like a you know, a couple hundred people signed up and I just started kind of making these samples and sending them to people and kind of YC's mantra is like, make something people want. And they have a big focus on having you just talk to people and ask people for feedback and just did that a lot. And that was kind of how we ended up getting started. And then when my co-founder Michael joined at the time, I was kind of working on the idea of making like pre-ground coffee where I added some of that, those adaptogens and then my co-founder Michael, and then we kind of land on the side of making like a liquid ready to drink coffee in a can. And we started by selling it to offices and tech companies. And those were basically all of those kind of early customers 
that I found through YC and we just started putting our cans in their fridges. And that actually brings me to the phone number um, that you alluded to, where in the beginning I was just doing all the label design myself because we were, you know, a two-man operation. And since they were all my friends, I just put my personal number on the cans and I was like, hey, text me, you know, any feedback, text me when you want to order more. And uh, people started texting me a lot. And then Michael was like, what are all those texts about? Uh, and then we eventually moved to a shared number. Though he likes to say that it was a, a dating strategy for me because I was single at the time, like a way to get my number out there, which, you know, no comments there, may or may not have been. Um, but anyway, that kind of led us to this bigger idea where my background is in hospitality, being a barista, and then coming to the world of like consumer products where I feel like for most consumers, it's actually pretty hard to connect with the brand or the people behind the brand. And for many beverages, especially this, typically a number on the can, but as like Michael puts it, it's like the number of last resort. It's the number that they want you to call only if you've been poisoned by it or whatever. And so we were working with our design team at Day Job, who's a super fun, awesome agency. And they had this kind of crazy idea of like, well, what if we just put the phone number like front and center and invite people to text us. And also like this is an approach we call scalable hospitality. So rather than viewing, you know, texting as a cost center and like a support thing, we just wanted to invite people to text us. And instead of spamming them with marketing messages, which I feel like virtually all CPG or other brands do who do SMS marketing, I find it like typically pretty spammy and they, you know, text a lot and I know it works, but I think it's also a way, it's a pretty sort of a kind of instant gratification, short-term way of thinking. Whereas we wanted to turn that upside down. And in the beginning, we were just all answering the text ourselves. And then we hired a couple of people to sort of reply to text ourselves. And we built our own kind of tech stack to manage that and have some automation. But most of the time, it's just a, a person, you know, replying to you. And we've had these amazing conversations that have actually been going on for months like people who've texted us like two years ago, every now and then text us again. And so it's partially about selling it through that, but more it's just about, you know, talking to people, hearing, hearing them, being there. It's like, if you go to a coffee shop, you don't typically just go to a coffee shop to get a coffee. A big part of it is connecting with another human. And I think, especially with, you know, COVID, we all crave that more than ever. I'm curious when the idea was brought to the table, was there any like instant pushback? And if so, like what were those objections or, or, you know, what was, you know, was there a sticker shock kind of like on the idea of like, no way, this, this doesn't make any sense. Can I curse in this podcast? Yeah. I mean, yeah, go for it. Yeah. We were all just like, fuck yeah, let's do it. Uh, nice. Okay. Awesome. The reason I was asking is because, you know, sometimes there's also these sort of ideas that you, you know, people, especially design agencies and branding that like you bring onto the table and everyone's like, no way. And then you think about it and it's like, actually, we should lean into that. But it's exciting that, that it was a fuck yeah from the beginning. That's when you know. Yeah, for sure. And where we're kind of now, so the context was that we were selling to these offices and we had a great business going on there until COVID happened. And then that basically dried up overnight and we had to pivot to, we were still like pre-launch. We were just kind of selling 
we were sold out most of the time just by selling to our friends. So we didn't make sense for us to launch until we were able to scale our production. And then COVID happened and we had to pivot to like direct to consumer and, and retail pretty quickly. And the phone number was kind of designed for the idea that you find the product in your like office fridge and then you can connect with us. Now that we're most focusing, mostly focusing on retail, um, we're actually going to be de-emphasizing the phone number a little bit because it, in retail, you just need a little bit more kind of real estate on your can to communicate what it is, why somebody should pick it up. Um, so the phone number will still be there, uh, but just a little bit smaller role. Yeah, Cal, what, one thing I was going to say is just in terms of recognizability, though, of the phone number, like as soon as, um, you know, I, I heard we're chatting with you and, and, and I saw it and I saw the phone number, I was like, oh, I've seen that, you know, like I, I, I've seen that last week. So I think while, you know, obviously, as you guys pivot into more retail and you need to be able to communicate to different customers, I think that at least that, you know, uniqueness of the phone number it's memorable in a way that other brands um you know would really die for in terms of like getting their customers to be to remember their product and know exactly what it is so i think you, you know the branding agency or whoever you guys worked with to spin that up definitely um definitely worked and the other thing that i kind of wanted to go back on i think another thing that you said that was really um insightful about how a lot of brands approach sms because i know a lot are thinking about sms as a growth channel and texting their users because obviously when you look at the data you are going to drive more sales when you text your customers right um and i almost think of it as like the equivalent of um of like app push notifications for like consumer apps right like that's what e-commerce and d2c businesses can do they can send text through different services to do that sort of stuff but being that you guys started with this um almost culture of sms right from the get-go like how have you um as you've scaled up as you've scaled up volume how have you like really built that into your culture i mean it's literally on your can so so how have you built that into your culture um as you've continued to grow yeah so <clears throat> that's a great question and on the growth side i you know, absolutely do believe it's a great channel. I think it just needs to be, you know, with great power comes great responsibility as a great philosopher once said. And uh, I think it's important to use it selectively. So we do send like marketing messages infrequently when we do new product launches or when we're actually offering significant value and essentially using it as a way for our SMS list to get first dibs on something really cool. So it's actually value of, you know, having texted us and, and being on that list. And we, our kind of motto is, is for friends by friends. We started making these for our friends and that's kind of how we want to make it feel like everybody who buys Saika is like, you know, a friend and will treat you as a friend. So, you know, friends don't spam friends. So that's kind of a, a big thing. And the other thing is like, it's a great channel for us to get rapid feedback. So if there's any issues with shipments or products, I think having just a very low friction way of having somebody text us that, hey, you know, what's going on with my order or like, can you change this or whatever it is, is something that our customers really appreciate. And for us, I think we're a little bit different from many beverage companies because most beverage companies are really sales and marketing companies that outsource the product development. And as a result, they can move very fast in the product development, uh, maybe a hot take, but I think the result is that many of those products are kind of mediocre. And 
it's not exactly the same thing, but I think it's a little bit same as like you're a tech company that has an outsourced tech team building kind of your core thing. And for example, YC is like pretty, you know, vocal that that's not a good way to go. You have to have that in-house to be able to move fast and, and build something great. And given that we're product people at heart, Michael, you know, building mobile things that billions of people have used at Facebook and my background in this sort of intersection of culinary world and, and food science thought that we can build this R&D to be one of our core competences. And so one of our first hires was a full-time food scientist, this guy, Paulo, who has like 15 years experience formulating products like Beyond Meat, uh, some like really awesome stuff. And basically we can, you know, make new products really quickly and we can continually keep improving the products and also the first version of Tyco was actually perishable, so it needs to be refrigerated. And we realized that that's obviously, you know, super difficult product to ship, especially D2C. And so early on, we realized that we need to get it to be not perishable. And so we did a complete reformulation of the product. We have oat milk and macadamia. Macadamia is kind of our, you know, unique uh, skew or, or milk. And so we started by formulating our own plant milks and then kind of build the skews on top of that or the flavors on top of that. And that's cool because we can then use the phone number or the SMS list as like an early audience and beta test list as well. Um, but then also get feedback on whatever we're working on kind of very rapidly. Yeah, I think the two things that you just mentioned there that really stand out are number one, um, using your uh, using those relationships and that text messaging with your customers as like a product development weapon right like you guys are getting faster insights you guys are really talking to your customers and that feedback loop is happening really fast so listening to your customers and taking that feedback and turning it right into product iteration and the second one that you said is if we're going to be texting our customers which we know is a very personal platform to be doing it um, in a way where you're providing value and in your case the value was literally saying hey you're going to get first dibs on this because you're signed up to engage with us and that's like something a friend would do so i think just for for the listeners those two those were two uh you know nuggets of, of wisdom on how you guys are approaching um everything there which is awesome um i i wanted to ask one thing on the, i think you said that you guys have your own plant nsf is that right like your own facility and so how is that, you know, it's, it's your it's your guys' facility. How is that different than, you know, some of the, I, f I foresee that like that brings different challenges that most brands have that like they just go from co-packer to co-packer or, um, you know, how, how are the challenges that you guys have because of that different than like, you know, jumping from co-packer to co-packer? Well, so we do still use co-packers. Uh, however, we have our own like a lab R&D facility where we do all the R&D and then we basically have a product that's like, you know, 95% close to what we're going to get once we put in a co-packer. So basically what that allows us to do is just de-risk the product development significantly where we can be. So for most brands, they maybe pay somebody to do the formulation for them. And I'm not saying that that's a bad approach, like that certainly can work. It can also be slow and expensive and the kind of miss rate there can be high. Because when you take something from like, you know, bench top scale, which is like when you're doing small scale to manufacturing, there's a lot of things that are different. So for us using kind of the same ingredients we'll be using. So for the, for making the lattes basically shelf stable, it's a, happens through a process called retorting. So basically the cans are like pressure cooked to, you know, kill any microbes that might be there to spoil it. 
and it's then you know good in room temperature without any preservatives. And typically, you know, the setups to do that cost you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you work with a formulation agency, they typically give you like a few formulations before you take it to a production where you maybe have to put in like a hundred grand to produce, you know, 10,000 cases or whatever it is, like pretty significant amounts for most small brands. Whereas we build a setup for like $200 to make something that's like 95%, you know, close to what we'd be getting out of a co-packer. And instead of doing, you know, four, you know, trials in six months, we did something like 60 and in the same time, basically just doing this kind of lean startup style rapid iteration by, you know, doing a tasting basically on a daily basis. So every morning we would taste yesterday's samples, we would give feedback, our R&D guy, Paula, would like go back to the lab, make a new set of samples, and we could just like iterate the process and, uh, you know, make the process way, way faster. Yeah, it sounds exactly like, you know, pros and cons, like you mentioned earlier of like, in-house or you know offshore development team for a tech company pretty much you know same same risk assessment there yeah and i mean at the same time it's like certainly is you know a big investment and not necessarily the like most certainly not the right approach for most brands or all brands however i think for us it has been absolutely the right move yeah 100 percent um Cal, my next question was going to be uh, in regards to, um, you know, the canned approach versus the, um, you know, the original approach you were talking about in your first company, right? What, um, how, how have you seen it going? Like, what are, what are some of the challenges? Obviously, from a product perspective, you were saying there's a lot of costs that are involved in actually like, you know, pressurizing it in a can and there's going to be more weight to ship and do all these different things, but there are benefits too, right? Like you were saying, you have more space for branding, it's ready to drink, easier to access for the consumer. So how would you just evaluate um, your experiences between the both forms of the product? And, and can you speak a little bit to like how those experiences have been and how they compare and contrast? For sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So shipping instant coffee or building D2C business on instant coffee is obviously you know, much easier from a shipping perspective when the way you're shipping is just super, you know, small and you can ship it as like a letter, basically. That being said, the big challenge with instant coffee was kind of the brand brand problem that I would say instant coffee has. I think most of us associate instant coffee being, you know, what your grandmother drinks, some like shitty stuff that, um, hasn't really evolved. And even though our product was significantly better, like New York Times called it instant coffee you'll actually want to drink, it still was a challenge convincing people that this is something you want to drink. And for many people, it made sense to consume it when you're like traveling or camping, but it's hard to build like a really great um, subscription business on such an infrequent use case. So I think that was a big takeaway. And I think Cometeer, which you guys might have heard of, make like frozen coffee pots, is basically solving the same problem of like, how do we help people make coffee at home easier in a way that kind of circumvents the brand problem by, you know, having this frozen coffee that you can melt and just feels fresher, even though I think it tastes basically the same as our coffee did. However, then that, you know, pauses, poses some other challenges that you have to ship it with like dry ice, which is pretty expensive and so on. But uh, without kind of diving in there, so we're right now in terms of shipping liquid, certainly, you know, tough for D2C, it's expensive to do. Um, 
that being said, I think the benefits are significant where the main thing is like, it's something you can just, you know, hand to somebody and they can crack it open and enjoy it right, right away. And for me as somebody, as like a barista who spent a lot of time working or kind of obsessing over coffee quality or, you know, product quality and, and my girlfriend, Michael and I are like some of the biggest product nerds that I know. I really like the idea that it's something that's like, you know, a sealed thing and somebody can just open it and there's no user error. Like you can't really fuck it up. It just is, and you just consume it. And if we've done our job well, every single can is going to taste amazing. And so that's really cool for me as a barista to be able to be at a point where we are making like, you know, thousands and millions of cans that you can pick up whether you're, you know, in Denver or Wichita or New York and have this amazing experience. So I think that's really cool. And then also for, you know, beverages where beverage companies really scale is retail. And the thing with retail is that it's kind of archaic business. It's really slow. It's really built on like relationships and distribution. And we're now getting to a point where we're like really like looking to start wrapping up our retail. And at the same time, last year was a big push for D2C for us because that's obviously something that we can control a lot more ourselves. We can see much more immediate results. So I think the interesting approach for many beverage companies that I've seen is that they don't actually necessarily even sell. They might have the website or they have the website, but if you click buy now, it just directs you to Amazon to buy it from there. So you can just channel more volume into one channel and then it's just hard to beat Amazon's, you know, prime fulfillment two days or one day, wherever you are. Um, and with all the cost included or involved in kind of running your own warehouse and shipping, you know, even with the FBA fees, it probably ends up being like pretty much the same price. So kind of where we're at and my thesis for kind of the future of D2C for especially beverages is that I think that the volume, sort of the baseline skews since are gonna be moving more toward Amazon and sort of these instant delivery apps like GoPuff where we just launched and it's like doing super well. Um, shout out to Liquid Death, I'm a big fan. I just buy it by the case from GoPuff. Somebody, I pay basically whatever I would pay at Whole Foods or wherever and somebody delivers to my door. That's like super convenient. I don't really want to buy it online if I can just have it, somebody deliver it to me in 15 minutes when I need it. So I think for the kind of bulk or what I'd call like mainline SKUs that are available all the time, these like Amazon and, and more instant deliveries are going to be a bigger driver. Whereas I think the kind of owned e-commerce is going to move more toward limited edition seasonal, like a reason that customers have to go to your website because then like, going to any brand's website is basically always going to be more work, more cumbersome than buying on Amazon or wherever you already buy stuff. So I think that brands need to have a good reason to drive people to their website um, and just kind of be able to provide more value there. So I'm, I think it's going to kind of, kind of diverge to these two directions. Yeah, I, I think that that's super insightful um, in terms of like really thinking about be thinking about the products that you're putting on your website in terms of like, what value can I place here beyond what's available in like bulk formats, right? Using different ways to scale up with um, retail and like last mile delivery for um, delivery of those products and then 
creating these really tailored custom experiences uh, and product offerings on the website. I think that's a really cool way to think about things. And then, um, you know, the other thing that I love that you mentioned was like just thinking about the UX of the can and how you can like actually control that user experience over all these different customers who are having your product. Whereas I'm sure, um, you know, in the earlier versions of the the instant coffee, you know, everyone has a different coffee maker, different water temperature, different style. They like their coffee and you can't. And so there's so many variables at play there. So now you you get to do your thing as a barista and make sure everyone has the best coffee, um, you know, possible. So I love that. I, I actually find that like so cool about CPG that you can actually deliver consistency in the product every single time. I mean, it's probably, you know, it's really hard to get to that point, but at a certain point it is achievable. And, um, and, and so like, as you were talking about the community, everything about texting, everything the phone number has done, I'm like, you damn i'm like damn you took the only idea of like how this can work for a physical product like if i want to replicate that it's like the phone number is like it's already taken but i know you're into web3 um and it seems like you know i'm thinking what is the only other possible way and it seems like that's where things are going yeah so i think web3 is super interesting for a, a number of reasons i think more broadly I've been sort of in sidelines of crypto since 2015. Um, ended up actually having like lunch with the Coinbase CEO in 2015 because like a friend used to work there and still wasn't convinced that Bitcoin was a thing back then, which I'm a little bummed about. Uh, but anyway, in the like last six months, like really dove in when I was chatting with my friends, uh, Rayhan and Alex Zhang at, at Friends with Benefits, which is this cool sort of crypto powered social club. I don't know how they describe themselves. With the idea is like you have to like buy and hold these tokens to be part of the community and what's cool about that is that it helps align the incentives so when everyone's sort of a co-owner theoretically of the community or the DAO, like the decentralized autonomous organization everyone has a vested interest in helping the community kind of succeed and, and has financial upside if the value of the token goes up and i think that's really interesting because you can use crypto as a way to align incentives along or among many people who might be strangers to each other. And where I think kind of CPG brands fit in there, which is necessarily obvious, but kind of getting into Web3, I think a lot of people have by now heard of like Web3 or NFT sort of like that, but there's like so much, it's so kind of feels like a wild west. The It took me, I'm like pretty tech savvy, but it took me like a couple of months just to figure out like what the heck is going on or like what are these gas fees? I like, you know, had a bunch of failed transactions when I didn't realize that I had to pay like this many gas fees and so on. I just don't really understand everything like, you know, what's, why it's needed. Um, but the point being, at the same time, you have these like CPG brands like Taika that, you know, thousands and thousands of consumers interact with on a daily basis. And so I think CPG brands actually are a natural on-ramp to get more people to Web3. So I invest in a company called Novel, which makes it super easy to sell NFTs on Shopify. And you basically just buy it on Shopify and USD, and they send you an email to like log into this portal where you can log in with like your Google account and basically create a wallet. And they like pre-fill your wallet with enough, you know, Polygon tokens to get this NFT. And using this, what I call like web two sort of native, uh, you know, brands and, and ways of 
selling people digital goods in a way that they don't even realize that they're buying that. So you don't need to like get a wallet. You don't need to like go somewhere and buy some ether and then transfer it to your wallet to buy an NFT and then pay these crazy cash fees. Like that's not scalable. That's not how we're gonna you know onboard the next billion people into you know the world of Web three. What I think I'm very bullish on is you know, how would a loyalty program look like where instead of giving somebody points or discounts, you get digital goods. I think that's super interesting. And, uh, you know, there's potential for referral programs and a bunch of interesting stuff um, that I think we're going to see, you know, a bunch of brands start looking into, especially as like paid hats are becoming more and more expensive. So, so I'm sure for our listeners, I'm sure there's some of them who are like really um, glued into like Web3 uh, and NFTs and the overlap with CPG. Um, but maybe for some of the ones who are just kind of getting into it, could you um, talk a little bit about um, the use case that you guys just launched with Friends with Benefits and like how a CPG brand, you know, other than selling these like digital uh, goods as a loyalty program, like what are some of the real ways that brands like yourself are actively engaging with Web3 uh, now and, and like you've already done? Yeah, for sure. So as I mentioned, we kind of do our own R&D and as a result, we can develop products really quickly. And so for a while, we've been thinking that it would be really fun to, you know, partner with an awesome community to essentially co-create a product that they want to exist. I mean, think about it. If you could, you know, be involved in a process to, so for most people, it's like, unless you're starting a beverage company or a CPG company, you don't have a lot of say in what product somebody creates. And if somebody came to you, it's like, what is a beverage you would like to exist in the world? Like what is something that you'd want to drink on a daily basis and give you the opportunity to be involved in creating that and give you a voice in that process. And then on top of that, actually give you, you know, a share of the revenue that that product creates and drives. Like, I think that's the future of the kind of CPG product creation. And so that's basically what we've been doing with friends with benefits now. So we kind of chatted with a, a group there and came up with this idea of, uh, what they came up with this idea of basically, are you guys filming with Club Mate? So Club Mate is like a, a Yerba Mate soda that's really big in Europe. It's not that big in the US. Um, yeah, it's like a, has like a cult status in like Berlin rave scene. And it's kind of this like uh, sort of rave uh, hacker scene product that a lot of people still like. And they kind of came up with this idea of like, well, what if we made a, you know, Club Mate, but make a Web3 was kind of the brief. And for us, like we knew immediately how we'd make that. So make it super delicious, but use really high quality stuff. So we're using a really high quality, like organic, uh, you know, Yerba Mate from Argentina. And then making it, you know, slightly sweet without any added sugar and kind of balancing with adaptogens, which is kind of our product development philosophy of what we wanted to do. And we're kind of creating what we call like dubbed as, as creative energy. So, so like a more sessionable energy drink that has the same caffeine as like half a cup of coffee. You can easily have, you know, three of them a day. It's sort of chuggable in terms of carbonation. So you can, you know, just pound it down if you want to, or you can savor it for longer. And it's like not too sweet. It's like really nice and crisp. And that's kind of the idea. And then what we're doing now is basically ask like a hundred people in FWB to join our alpha tasting group. And in the last two, last week, actually, we just did our fourth tasting today. So we've done a bunch of tastings with, with these people. So we 
made a couple samples, two versions of the product. We codenamed Q2 and U1. And we shipped these to 100 people. And then we did these like Zoom tastings where like dozens of people showed up for tasting to, you know, we walk them through the tasting. They taste both of them. They fill in the survey and then we just chat about them and like get all their feedback. And now we have this data from, you know, 100 people for how we can improve this for the next version. And the next stage is we're moving to this beta phase where we're actually going to drop this as an NFT. So like a non-fungible token that uh, you can buy and the token holders then get to redeem that for a case of product, which is going to be two different versions of the product. And then the NFT holders will get to vote on chain using probably Snapshot, which is this tool that, you know, DAOs and communities can use tokens to, you know, vote on proposals, sort of create these binding votes which of those versions becomes kind of the version one that will then launch to the world. And as far as we know, this is kind of a first of a kind a partnership between a, a DAO and a brand. And yeah, it's just like the feedback from the community has been phenomenal. People love the product. I think people love being able to be part of something like this. And ultimately when we involve people in this way. They have much stronger kind of incentive to share about it and talk about it. And then at the same time, you know, we uh, give a share of the revenue to FWB. So all of the members actually have a vested interest to, you know, help us sell more, more of this product. Got it. Got it. So you guys are basically partnering with uh, Friends with Benefits and the members of their DAO are you know, getting upside and one, engaging with your product, becoming great, um, you know, great brand advocates for you, giving you guys great feedback. And then also at, because uh, the DAO has a stake in the success of this product, everyone's going to benefit if this product launch goes, um, goes well. So it's a win-win for everyone. Is that right? Exactly. And the kind of big thesis of Web3 is, there's many ways of putting it, but some say it's like, you know, property rights on the internet, or the idea is that users should own the platforms that they use. So right now, you know, if you use Facebook or Twitter, they're ex essentially extracting value from you. Like they're selling ads to show to you and you don't own the data, um, you don't own the platform. Whereas in Web3, you know, I think this is TBD, how it's actually going to happen or if it's going to happen, but at least sort of the ethos is that users should own the platforms they are using. And in the same way, I believe that we believe that consumers should you know own the products they consume at least partially and i would love to find ways of kind of significantly rewarding our early community and people who've been early supporters from the get-go right now with these kind of web 2 cpg companies their consumers or customers have no upside if the company gets sold um, you know for a lot of money in fact that often means that the product will you know end up becoming worse when some big company wants to buy it and make more profits however you know, imagine a future where your customers, you know, in some way have upside in the success of the company. I believe they're going to be much more vocal about, you know, helping the company grow and just much stronger supporters. Wow. So and if the company it, gets acquired, the community doesn't get transferred over. The community is just not going to be there anymore. I'm curious on like, what well, are the things you guys? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the community can, you know, decide. You can decide to be part of a community or not. Oh, I, I mean, on a regular CPG company. That um, right, right, exactly. Right, exactly. 
Um, I'm, I'm curious on like the things that you guys are testing out in these samples um, on Zoom. Like what are the variables? You know, is it flavors? Is it ingredients? Because um, I'm just thinking like, you know, there could be, you know, there could be instances where, um, again, like you said, this is the first time this is being done, right? So just thinking on different scenarios where one one side of the community is like, oh, I'm out. Like, you know, it's got cinnamon, like I'm not doing this. Um, but then on the other hand, it's like, well, I'm being listened to, this is going our way. I'm now a raving fan and I'm staying here forever. So it's gonna be super interesting to see it play it out. Yeah, for sure. And it's been like really fun to kind of figure that out. In terms of variables, we've been testing. So we use kind of natural sweeteners to sweeten like, what's called non-nutritive, not sugar, natural sweeteners, sweeteners like allulose and monk fruit to sweeten our products. And so we've developed some pretty cool IP around those and, and we're kind of testing a little bit different like sweetener combos and different carbonation levels for the products to just see what folks prefer. Hey, Cal, last question I'd have on the Web3 um, and NFT stuff for other consumer brands and how they think about it, right? So you've obviously, you've been in SF, you've been really involved in this scene, um, and you've already, you're executing um, a really successful, uh, you know, Web3 sort of CPG collaborate, collaborative launch, right? So for other CPG founders that might be listening or D2C founders in general, are there any resources that you'd recommend um or just different ways of like approaching this? Cause I know it's a, it, like you were saying, it can be really overwhelming to get into it. And then once you've, once you're in the web three world, it's like pretty straightforward, but for people who this may not be there every day and they may not have this stuff in their face and they're like, oh yeah, that would be cool to think about launching one of these collaborations down the road, but literally have no idea where to get started. Are there any resources or directions that you could point them? Yeah, for sure. So as a, a great primer, sort of through the Web3 world. I think Tim Ferriss has a great podcast with uh, Naval Ravikant and Chris Dixon. That's uh, does like pretty good job explaining what it's about and why some of the kind of smartest people I know are excited about it. Then my friend Gabby Goldberg has this great reading list. If you Google Gabby Goldberg Web3 reading list, it'll come up. That has a very kind of thorough list of stuff to read. And then on the sort of intersection of, of CPG and, and Web3, um, John Craven from BevNet is, I think he's hosting like a Twitter spaces on it. Uh, there's great stuff there. Um, Off Limits, the serial brand, uh, Emily Miller there is doing interesting stuff. Then my friend Chris Cantino runs this group called Club CPG that I'm part of. That's kind of my go-to. It's an awesome community. Um, the price of entry is pretty steep. You need to have like an NFT to join a Telegram channel, but they have a Discord, which is Discord is kind of the app where a lot of this stuff happens. They have a, it's free to join the Discord. So that's definitely a, a great place to do. And then also my friend Andrea Hernandez has a phenomenal, phenomenal newsletter or snapshot. And she's doing a lot of uh, Web3 stuff as well and kind of mentioning some of the most notable projects. So I think those are some of the you know good places to start. You know, that that's that's super helpful and actionable. And, um, you know, I, I just love hearing how like you're on the forefront and cutting edge of this stuff. And I, I think, Ramon, what we should definitely do is like we should bring Cal back on, you know, in a couple months or a year or something or Cal, maybe when you make it to Miami and then we can kind of unpack like how this launch went and, how you know, different frameworks and 
playbooks for unpacking this because we're still so early in, um, you know, where Web3 meets D2C. So that's going to be really exciting. And it's really great to hear, you know, how you've how how far you guys have come on that front and how bullish you guys are um, on the opportunities. Yeah. And, you know, on that note, you know, for people that are hearing this, like, how do they get involved on this DAO with friends with benefits? Anyone that's like, you know what, I'm just going to follow along what Kyle is doing. I'm going to dive in and, and make this my first, you know, participation in a DAO. Yeah. So if you want to, you know, look into joining friends with benefits, which I highly recommend, I'm a member too. Uh, their website is fwb.help. There's a bunch of information like, if you want to become a member, you have to like buy their tokens on Uniswap and do a couple of things. And there's like an application process. So there's a few steps involved, but highly recommend looking into it. We also have great stuff on Twitter. If you want to follow our stuff, um, I'm Cal Fries on Twitter. So K-A-L-F-R-E-E-S-E. And then um, on Instagram as well. And we're Taika. On Twitter, we're Taika Coffee. And then on Instagram, just Taika. So that's probably the best place to kind of follow up how, how this whole thing is going to unfold. Sweet. Well, Cal, we, we loved having you on. Um, you know, there were so many cool topics that we were able to talk about and really appreciate all the insight um, that you were able to come on and share with us. Yeah, yeah for sure. Thanks really for having me. Yeah, this was super right, fun. Guys.